Well, hey, I can't think of a better thing to do in these days than to open the scriptures together. So why don't you grab your Bibles, you can hit pause, grab a Bible, and let's open together this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And last Sunday, we launched into a new series of teachings in our church that we're calling The Abundant Life. And here's what we're going to do. Each week, we're going to look at a different aspect of the resurrection that brings beauty and blessing into our lives. So if you tuned in last Sunday to the Easter message, you heard me say that the resurrection of Christ is not just true. It is true, but it's not just true. The resurrection is also beautiful. There's a beauty to the resurrection. The resurrection is a better way to live. I talked about how there are blessings, these indescribable blessings that are ours because we're in a living relationship with Jesus, the risen Lord. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about abundant life. He, would, he talked about this life abundant in his teaching. This is what Jesus was talking about. So one of the things I've learned as a parent, I've learned many things as a parent, but one of the things that I've learned is that children often don't realize how good they have it. Do you feel me, moms and dads? Kids sometimes don't realize how good they have it. There's this gap that can exist for kids between reality and appreciation, between the reality of their lives, how good they have it, and their appreciation of how good they have it. And so parenting tactic number one in the McMurray household has been that we will often tell our girls just how spoiled they truly are. So we'll say to them, you have no idea how good you have it. You have no idea how fortunate you are to have us as your parents It's amazing how ineffective that has been. But as Christians, here's the point. As Christians, we can experience this as well. So we can experience this gap that children often experience between our reality, how blessed we are because we know Christ and our appreciation of that blessing. Sometimes we don't know just how good we actually have it until someone comes along and forces us to take a really hard look at some of the blessings. And so that's what we're gonna do in this series. Each Sunday, we're gonna take one blessing that is ours because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Amen, friends? So many blessings. Each Sunday, we'll just take one and we'll look at it. We'll focus on it. We'll unpack it. We'll revel in it. We'll cause our hearts to sing in it. And why? So that we can appreciate this abundant life that we have so that our lights can shine in this world with the hope, the joy, the power, the truth, the goodness of the gospel to know Christ, our risen Savior. Now, did you know that the very first word that the risen Christ spoke to his disciples, the very first word that he spoke to his gathered church, his followers had gathered, and he came and he met them. And the very first word that Jesus spoke to them was a word 
about peace. Did you know that? And so it seems right to me to turn our attention this morning in this first sermon to this topic of peace. Will you look at the story with me? John chapter 20, I'm going to pick up in verse 19. Here's what happened according to the gospel writer John. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the Jews, the first day of the week for the Jews was Sunday. This is, this is Easter Sunday. Mary Magdalene has already gone to the tomb that morning, but until this moment, the disciples who have gathered, they have not, they have not seen the risen Lord. So it's Easter in the evening, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That's a reference to the marks of the crucifixion, the holes where the nails had been and the hole in his side where the spear had pierced his side. He showed them his, his wounds. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Astounding. What a passage. You know, at River West, we believe that the Bible is one unified story from from cover to cover, one unified story with the resurrection of the Christ as the centerpiece of the entire story. The resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus functions like the central plot of this entire book. The entire Old Testament constantly pointing forward with longing and hope to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And the entire New Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament, describing for the church the significance of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection, how Christians ought to live in light of the resurrection. And the reason I'm telling you this is with that as sort of the backdrop, the whole book is about the resurrection that, that serves to draw attention to this moment. Think about it. This moment is the climax of the entire story of the Bible. Christ has walked out of the tomb. He's walked out of death. Finally, he has accomplished what the whole Bible has been pointing towards, the resurrection. And it functions to draw attention to the drama of that first moment when his church was gathered, what would Jesus say? It's like a diamond that you set with black velvet in the backdrop. The whole Bible is the backdrop and the diamond is this moment, the very first words. What would be the first thought, the first words that would roll off the tongue of the risen Christ? Astounding. Here's Jesus. He's literally just walked out of a tomb. He enters the room where his disciples have, have gathered. And the first thing, agenda number one, it's not to describe the resurrection or give a theology talk. He doesn't come to scold them. No, no, no. Word number one is the word peace. Peace be with you. The peace that is at the heart of this passage, and Jesus repeats it three times, 
clearly this is not just any old piece. This is a piece that somehow it's directly connected, directly a result of the resurrection. This is not, this is not a piece that the world can offer us. There's nothing like the peace that we're talking about here. This is a peace that can only be given by someone who has been raised from the dead. This is resurrection peace. This is abundant peace. And I wonder, church, do we appreciate it? Do we understand it? Do we get it? How could we gain a deeper appreciation for the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about? Well, here's what I wanna do in the time we have together. A couple things. First, I'm gonna draw your attention to two details that matter to John. And then I'm gonna draw out three threats to peace, three enemies of peace that are right in this narrative, right in this story. So two details and then three threats. It's a five-point sermon, all right? Buckle up, it's on, here we go. So first of all, there are two details in this story that we should not rush past. We look back at your Bible, verse 19. Detail number one is this, the doors are locked. The doors are locked. And detail number two is this, the followers of Jesus do not have peace. The doors are locked and the people of Jesus don't have peace. It's Easter Sunday and the followers of Jesus are in lockdown. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like last Sunday. It's Easter Sunday and the people of Jesus are in lockdown, right? And we know these details matter because John keeps drawing our attention to them. The locked doors, we know, we know this matters to him because he repeats it in the next episode with, with, with Thomas. He, he goes out of his way to tell us that the doors were locked again. These locked doors matter. The reason the doors are locked, John tells us, is because the threat of the enemies of Christ. The doors are locked because fear of the Jews. So there's a threat. So it's self-protection. That's the reason the doors are locked. But the function of the locked doors for John is different. The reason the doors are locked is because there's a threat. But in the gospel, the function of the locked doors is to tell us something about the nature of the resurrection. Something about the nature of Christ's resurrected body. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them, John tells us. He didn't have to knock. He didn't have to open the door. One moment, he's not there. And then in a moment, in a flash, suddenly he's there. He's in the room. But he's not a ghost. One moment, he's not there. The next moment, he's just there. Imagine tonight you locked up your house for the night you deadbolted all the doors, you closed the blinds, you turned on the alarm, and there you are, your house is locked down, no one can get in, you're sitting in your living room, you're enjoying a cup of tea, and suddenly you look up and your neighbor is standing in your living room. It would freak you out. This is like the stuff of horror movies. Or imagine even scarier, it was your neighbor's child. Children are always scary, right? <laughs> when they're there out of context, there you are, you've locked the house and suddenly the neighbor kid is standing in your living room. It would scare you to death. You'd think you'd seen a ghost. This is the moment. 
the disciples have gathered, they've locked the doors and suddenly Jesus is there, but he's not a ghost. And Luke, John goes out of his way to tell us this. He says, Jesus showed them the holes in his hands. And Thomas later will read, Thomas even gets to stick his hands in the, in the hole in Christ's side. Luke, the, the gospel writer, in his account, he tells us that Jesus could tell they were freaked out. He could tell they thought he was a spirit. So in, in Luke's account, Jesus even goes so far as to say, give me a piece of fish and I'll eat it to prove to you that I'm not just a ghost, I'm here physically. Somehow this resurrection body, it's, it's, it's like our physical bodies, but it's not like our physical bodies. He was raised physically, yes. He can eat fish. You can touch him. You can put your fingers in the holes in his hands, but he's also not like us. He can enter rooms without having to walk through the door. He's material, but he's not limited by materialism. This is, this is fascinating. And you say, Pastor, what does this have to do with peace? My friends, everything, 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 everything. Don't you realize the resurrection of Christ is a foretaste of your resurrection, you will be raised to new life with a real resurrection body like his, similar to the one you have now, but different, part of a new age, a new order, the new creation where all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the sorrow and the brokenness of this broken and fallen and sinful world will be wiped away and suddenly you will finally have peace. The locked Doors, my friends, this is not insignificant. John says, pay attention to this. But second, the disciples don't have peace. Just the opposite, actually, they're paralyzed. I mean, imagine this moment. They are paralyzed. Fear, uncertainty, their whole world has been turned upside down. The locked doors may give a, a false sense of security, but the reality is behind those locked doors, these guys were totally undone. And then in an instant, they go from not having peace to suddenly having abundant peace. And, and what was the critical turn? What was the critical pivot? The presence of the risen Christ right there in their midst. Without the reality of the risen Christ, they don't have peace. But once the risen Christ is with them, suddenly, peace. I like to say it, no Jesus, no peace. Or you could turn that around and say, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. Amen. But think about this, without the risen Christ in our world, in your life, in our church, there's no peace, my friends. Oh, we can try to fabricate peace. People do it all the time. In our world, we try to create peace to the best of our ability. I went on Google last night and I, and I typed in, how, how can you find inner peace? Type this into your Google search engine. You'll find all kinds of practical, wonderful advice. List after list, eight things to do, 15 things to do. And some of them are really helpful, really practical. Slow down. Don't make mountains out of molehills. Declutter your life. I mean, you can find endless advice about how to find inner peace, but here's what you will always 
realize it completely depends on you and what you do. But can you and I ever actually create inner peace? Impossible. We'll, we'll, all we'll do is we'll come under the crushing burden and the reality that left to our own, there's no peace. There's no peace. So the doors were locked and the disciples did not have peace. And then suddenly Jesus, the risen Lord, entered their midst and everything changed. Everything changed. And oh, how I'm praying this for you, my friends, whether you've tuned in, you've been a part of our church for decades or whether this is your first Sunday tuning in, the word of the risen Christ to you is peace be with you. Such good news. I hope you'll receive it today. I hope you'll receive it. But there are some threats in this passage, three of them actually, threats that can rob you of the peace. And the reason I wanna show you these threats is because they'll give you some insight into the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. What is this peace that the risen Christ offers his followers? So let's look at each of these. Enemy number one will be the most obvious to you. It's right here in verse 19. Enemy number one to peace is fear. Fear. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. That's what John tells us. They were freaked out. Their leader had been murdered. They're pretty sure that they're next. And so their fear is totally understandable. And right into the center of that fear steps Jesus, the risen Lord. Unbelievable. So this week, I just have felt this strong nudge in my spirit to address fear right now, to talk a little bit about fear. I think part of that is because I'm aware of the fact that of all the different emotions that we're feeling, I think fear might be one of the most prevalent. I've talked to so many people and a lot of our leadership, as we've called members of the church, we've heard just you talk about what you're experiencing and fear is a big part of that. Fear for your health, fear that you might get the virus, fear for your job, fear for your finances, fear for the economy, fear for loved ones. We, Kathy and I talked to a woman in our church who has a friend who's on the front lines in a COVID-19 ward and she doesn't have one of those N95 masks and, and this friend of ours is just so afraid for her. Totally legitimate, right? So fear can rob you of peace. And even in my own life, it's caused me to reflect on how much I struggle with fear just as a pastor and as a, and a man, a follower of Jesus. I struggle with fear, friends. I'm afraid that I'll fail as a leader. I'm afraid that our church could wander somehow, drift from our mission or, or somehow be tempted off course by the pressures of our culture, the pressure of our world. I fear that personally I might blow it as a leader or, or fail or struggle. I fear for my family, for my girls, for their health and their safety. And one of the things that I've personally discovered is that in my life, when I am afraid, the number one source of peace and that fear has always been my relationship with the risen Christ. Amen? 
his, he's, he's always there to step right into that moment and relieve me of that fear. How precious, how precious. Psychologists tell us that fear is what they call a, a primary emotion. So there's primary emotions and then there's secondary emotions. And fear, fear is one of these negative emotions that can often be underneath. It can be the root or, or the source of other negative emotions like anger. If you find yourself struggling with anger, it's very possible that the emotion that's really at the root of that is fear. Fear of not being in control, fear of becoming irrelevant. Who knows what could cause anger? But fear can also cause us to be manipulative, to try to take control. It can cause us to, to slip into apathy. Fear can be the cause of shame. And so in this time where we're in quarantine, maybe what you've seen in your own life is you've become aware as you've had time to just spend time with yourself, you become aware of all these negative emotions that are bubbling up. And you know what? It's quite possible that at the root of a lot of those emotions is fear. Fear. And right into the midst of that fear steps the risen Christ. You know, it's interesting. If you look at your Bible in verse 19b, this little phrase, Jesus came and stood among them, That's saying more than we might realize. In the Greek, it literally reads, he stepped right into the center, right into the middle of the room. This is where the risen Christ belongs, (laughs) right in the middle. Anytime followers of Jesus have gathered, this is where Jesus wants to be, right in the center. When, when Around River West, when we say we're, we want to be Christ-centered, this is what we're talking about. We want to center everything about our church, about our lives, about our worship and our ministries, right around the center of the risen Christ. He comes and he stands right in the center of the meeting. That, that matters. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't whisper to them from outside the door, He doesn't speak to them from a distance. He doesn't even pull up a chair and join the circle. That's not enough for Jesus. He wants them to see him. He wants them to be encouraged by his presence. He wants them to know I'm here. I'm right in the center. I'm right in the middle of your gathering. Amazing. And what is more, it's not just that Jesus comes into the middle. Think about what he says to them. He's saying, when my children are afraid, The cure for fear, oh, friends, listen to this. The cure for fear is the presence of the risen Christ. Notice when he found them in fear, they're paralyzed. He doesn't stand outside the door and scold them and say, what's wrong with you? How many times have you read in your Bible, fear not? No, he doesn't talk to them like that. He he enters the room. He stands right in the middle and he brings them a word of peace. He says, I know you're afraid. I know you're freaked out. I know you're unsettled. I know this world can be scary. What do you need? You need my presence. This is peace, River West. To have the risen Lord Jesus at the very center of our lives. What a gift. He's not distant. He's not remote. 
He's not, he's not off in a, in a faraway land. No, he's right here with us. He's right there with you, bringing peace into your deepest fears. Wonderful. So that's enemy number one, fear. Enemy number two is what I want to call guilt. Or you could call it undealt with sin. The opposite of peace is turmoil. The opposite of peace is unrest. And nothing can cause turmoil and unrest in the human soul than guilt for your sin. Don't you know that, friends? That can cause such turmoil. We know this is a theme in this passage for a couple reasons. First, did you notice that fascinating statement in verse 23 where Jesus says to his disciples, he says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, uh, they are forgiven them. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's... Um, an amazing statement. I don't even remotely have time to deal with it, but it's enough just to say that the mission of the church that Jesus gives his disciples, the mission is to take the message of the gospel, which is a message of forgiveness. That as we preach the gospel, what we're declaring to our world is finally, there is actually a powerful source of forgiveness because Jesus, the true lamb of God suffered and died on a sinner's cross. And not only did he die, he rose again. Jesus wouldn't give the church this mission if the world did not need forgiveness for their sins. But the reality is we do, and everyone knows it. We all know we have a guilt problem before our creator. This massive threat to peace. Just think how much of your negative behavior can be traced back to the root of guilt in your life from your past. It can be so powerful. It can lurk in there unnoticed, but it can have such a powerful influence on your behavior. And right into the center of this guilt steps the crucified and risen Savior. And this by far, the second most convincing evidence for me that this is about guilt. Would you look back at 19 through 21? There's this Jesus, he he speaks peace. He says, peace be with you. And then John says, he shows them the marks of the cross. And then the very next words out of his mouth, what? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And sandwiched in between, Jesus wants them to see the evidence that he suffered on a sinner's cross. Why? Because Luke is drawing attention to the fact that peace has been accomplished. Peace has been purchased. Peace was bought by the blood of Christ. Jesus is saying to them, don't you realize I was pierced for your transgressions. They drove nails through my hands. They stuck a spear in my side. I was crushed for your iniquities, Isaiah 53. And why, why was Jesus crushed for our peace? To purchase peace. So you gotta get yourself into this room because there he is. He's standing before them 
And the word peace keeps rolling off of his tongue. Peace be with you. But what are they looking at? I guarantee you the disciples were fixated on the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. That's what they were looking at. This is not just any risen person. This is the resurrected body of the very same Christ who was crucified. He's risen, yes, but who is it that was risen? It was the one who had just hung on a cross. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus takes into eternity in his resurrection body. Think about this church. He takes into eternity the evidence of his sacrifice for sins, for all of eternity, those holes in his hand, that hole in his side, permanently raised to a resurrected state where he carries with him the evidence of his passion. As the writer Hebrews tells us, he ever lives to make intercession for our sins. Amazing. Why? So that we could finally have peace. So we could finally have forgiveness. I remember one time many years ago, I met with a man in our church who was just really unraveled in his life, lots of turmoil. And he was telling me his story and it was a painful story, a lot of, a lot of mistakes. And I remember there was this moment in the story where he said, I realized I just cannot forgive myself. And when I first heard him say that, I, I cannot forgive myself, I felt bad for him and I, and I even empathized with him and said, yeah, man, that's really hard. But, but later on, as I reflected on the conversation, I realized that statement, I cannot forgive myself, that statement actually really started to agitate me. I got agitated because I realized, wait a minute, no one's asking you to forgive yourself. Jesus certainly is not asking you to forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You don't have the power to forgive yourself. You don't have the authority to forgive yourself. But Jesus does. Jesus, the risen Lord, who carries for all eternity the evidence that he was sacrificed to forgive you of your sins. He has the authority and he has the power to bring into your life the peace of forgiveness. Will you receive that this morning? Oh, how I hope you'll turn to Christ for forgiveness, for peace, for true inner peace. So enemy number one, fear. Enemy number two, guilt. And finally, enemy number three, disbelief, disbelief. And now we're ready finally to look at this odd incident with Thomas. Did you notice this? John, he tells us, verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas was not with, Thomas was not on the Zoom call. <laughs> Can you believe this? What in the world? The reader's thinking, Thomas, of all of the meetings to miss. You miss the meeting where the risen Christ first appears. Where was Thomas? We don't know. We don't know. So the other disciples told him, you moron. No, they said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, 
unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. I will never believe. You know, I've reflected on this story and I find it odd that we refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas because this is not doubt that John's describing. Thomas is not struggling with doubt. This is, this is disbelief. Thomas doesn't say, I doubt the resurrection, right? Thomas says, I actually refuse to believe. See, you can, you can doubt something and doubt often accompanies faith. When you, when you doubt, doubt is different than disbelief. And doubt, friends, doubt is a, is a really common part of our Christian experience. When you doubt something, it means that you're, you're, you're still open to it. You're open, you're inquisitive, you're, you're thinking, you're seeking truth. Doubt often accompanies faith. And I've talked to so many Christians, many of part of our church who say, yeah, I, I wrestle with doubt. Can I, can I tell you something? If that's you, if, you, if there are times where you experience doubt, welcome to the club. We all experience doubt. But that's not what's happening in this story. Thomas is not doubting. Thomas says to his friends, I don't care what you tell me. I don't even care that you are unanimous. All 10 of you are unanimous in your witness to the resurrection. I do not care. I refuse to believe. I will never believe until I can stick my own fingers in his side. So this isn't doubt. This is different. This is disbelief. And here's my question. How does Jesus, the risen Lord, respond to people who are in stubborn disbelief? Well, in his grace, he comes back. Did you know that Jesus recreated this entire scene for one reason and for one reason only? To come for Thomas. He came back for Thomas. I just can't believe that. He came back for Thomas. We look at it, it's an exact repeat. Eight days later, John tells us, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Thank heavens, Thomas was there. <laughs> Although the doors were locked, exactly the same, Jesus came and where did he stand? He stood among them right in the middle where Jesus, the risen Lord belongs. And what did he say to them? He said, peace be with you. This is verbatim, the exact same story. The doors are locked. Jesus stands in the middle. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. Someone in this room does not have peace. Who is it and why? It's the person who is stubbornly refusing to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Friends, if you stay in your stubborn disbelief, you will never have peace. You will never have peace. And what does Jesus do? He comes back. Look what he says. 
He said to Thomas, put your finger here and and see my hands. Put your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve anymore, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus came back for Thomas and in his grace, yes, he said, Thomas, I'm gonna allow you your request. Put your fingers here, place your hand in my side. But then what does he do? Two things, he calls Thomas out of disbelief. He says, no more of this. It's time to believe. And then he says, I'm, and actually I'm setting a new precedent from now on the truly blessed, the truly, the truly blessed who will live abundant life of peace will be people who don't have to see physical heaven. They don't have to stick their fingers in the holes on my hands. They will believe because of the testimony of my apostles. He says to Thomas, no more disbelief. It's time to believe. And my friends, here's what Jesus is saying to you. No more disbelief. Today is your day. Jesus says, put your faith in me. I promise you, if you cast yourself on me in humble faith, you will finally have that peace that has evaded you. Amen. I'm gonna pray about that right now. Heavenly Father, Oh, how we thank you for your word, for this incredible text, for this powerful story, like a diamond set against the black velvet of the entire Bible is this moment when the risen Christ enters the room, the very first church service of the risen Lord. And where does he stand? Right where he belongs, right in the center. And what are the first words that roll off of his tongue? Peace be with you. And how God is a church. We need your peace, Jesus. We revel in your peace. We celebrate that peace. We embrace the promise of your peace. That peace has been accomplished. We don't have to fabricate it or earn it or prove that we have it. All you call us to do today is humbly receive in faith the peace that you offer. And you alone, Jesus, because you died for our sins and you rose again. And so we worship and we celebrate and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship today. I wanna invite you to worship I want to invite you to give. If you'd like to give as an act of worship, you can follow instructions in the happenings. You can give online or mail checks to the church. But also I want to invite you to pray. And actually, I want to tell you a little bit about how as a church, we want to pray with a little bit more intentionality in this season that we're in. So I want to remind you of a couple things. First, we have a weekly prayer gathering called Wednesday Noon Prayer where the folks in that group gather on Zoom. And if you'd like to be a part of a prayer gathering, we'd love to have you. There are instructions in the happenings about how to join that Zoom prayer. 
But we're going to do an additional kind of prayer. Uh, we, we learned from our Easter weekend, we had these Saturday prayer sessions on YouTube Live, and we were blown away by how awesome those were. If you missed those, the only thing I can say is you missed those. I mean, you missed out. They were incredible. And so in response to that, we realized let's continue to do that. So what we're going to do is on Tuesday mornings, Thursday mornings, and Saturday mornings at 8 a.m., there will be a pastor, one of our pastors, on YouTube Live at 8 a.m., ready to guide anyone who wants to show up. You just log in in a time of guided prayer. So we're going to, here's how we'll arrange the week. We'll do our daily devotionals, the daily word on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then we'll do daily prayer, morning prayer on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and you can find out how to log into those daily prayers um, through our, our happenings. God bless you, River West. Let's worship the Lord this morning.